This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following content is explicit. It's Wednesday, May 30th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Ukrainian authorities convinced the world that the famous journalist Arkady Babchenko was killed in Kiev. Babchenko reported fearlessly on Russian politics and human rights violations in the war in Ukraine. He received constant death threats, and then one came true. A photograph of Babchenko, shown in a puddle of blood with gunshot wounds on his back, was released to the public. A member of the Ukrainian parliament gave the details of the murder on the Facebook page that stood in as the facts of the case. The Ukrainian police released a sketch of the killer. He was bearded and in a denim cap. The United Nations demanded an investigation. All the while, Babchenko was being eulogized. His name was being etched on a memorial to journalists. And then there was a press conference. We can't speak Russian. Maybe you can or Ukrainian. But uh, I think we can hear the moment where what they call in the world of magic, the reveal. Yes. It was Babchenko, the real, totally not dead Babchenko. He had faked his own death to catch the real killers. This, of course, gave rise to other people trying to glom on to that tactic. Roseanne claimed that she faked her own racism. Putin said, well, you know how I always said that the uh, death of Sergei Magnitsky was due to natural causes? Got a new explanation. Maybe he's not dead. You don't know. By the way, the same explanation applies to the following journalists who are said to have died. Igor Domnikov, Valery Ivanov, Anna Politskovskaya, Timur Kuashev, Dmitry Tiskilin. Anyways, about 20 more of them. Fake their own deaths. So he says, we thought Babchenko was gone, but he's here. On to Melania Trump. The president asserts she's here, but she seems gone. Melania Trump, the bizarro world Babchenko. Yeah, Babchenko is alive. But do we really know he's alive? Did anyone tug on his face mask like they wear in Mission Impossible movies? What if it's not Babchenko? What if it's Tom Cruise or Penelope Cruz or Philip or Elizabeth Jennings or Kanye West? Or that time Tyra Banks went undercover as a fat lady. Could be Tyra Banks in there. Maybe it's Josh Hartnett. No one's really heard from Josh Hartnett in a while. How do we know it's not him? Fine actor, that Josh Hartnett. So this was all part of a sting to catch the real assassins or the potential assassins and also to try to entrap that close family friend who might make a move on Mrs. Babchenko. That's just gravy. The real mission was to catch whoever would do harm to Babchenko and therefore do harm to truthful reporting. And to catch that man, you have got to engage in untruthfulness and misreporting. By the way, the findings of that UN investigation are in and it was Yaroslav. Yaroslav was the family friend getting a little handsy in comforting the widow Babchenko, the ersatz widow Babchenko, the widow for a day. Now who's embarrassed, Yaroslav? 
on the show today. A spiel about Chinese tariffs. It's a spiel you won't want to miss about a foreign policy you will. But first, I am going to help you. I'm going to help and improve your life. What I am going to do is help you find your way through the morass known as your Netflix queue. You know, they make a lot of content that Netflix, the stature, the status, the exclusivity conveyed by the phrase Netflix original, it is akin to the exclusivity of the members only jacket back in the 1980s. It's not exactly a velvet rope situation. When everything's a Netflix original series or movie, nothing is a Netflix original series or movie. So I am here with an actual Netflix original film that is quite charming and is quite enjoyable. It is called Abiza. It is out on Netflix now. It's writer and director Alex Rickenback and Lauren Kahn, who call each other A-R and L-K, you should know. They are here on The Gist. And this conversation is soon to be a Netflix original series. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ibiza. It's not just a Spanish tourist destination or a name of a town that you always pronounce wrong and feel bad about. It's a new movie on Netflix starring Gillian Jacobs, Vanessa Bayer, and Phoebe Robinson. They go to Spain and then Ibiza. I don't want to give too much away, but there Gillian falls in love with a really cool DJ played by Richard Madden, who you know from Game of Thrones. This movie was directed by Alex Rickenback, based on a screenplay by Lauren Kahn. These two have known each other for years, going back to Funny or Die, and they're both here now. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming in. Hello. Thank you for having us. Okay, so I was pitched Alex, and this is a well-directed movie, but I said, I want to talk to a female because the whole thrust of this is the female bonding thing that's going on that's not totally new, but you've got Bridesmaids and you've got Girls Trip, and I want to kind of talk about how it's different when it's a bunch of guys acting debaucherous, which we've seen for 30 years, and a bunch of women. So does that sound cool? We'll That's, talk about that. That sounds that. cool sure. to me. Did, Lauren, did you, was this one of those scripts where you came up with a script and pitched it, or was there a different process for how this whole thing came about? Kind of a different process. When I sold my first movie, my agent was like, do one stupid thing with your money. Uh-huh. And I went on a trip and kind of just wanted to do like a friendship, fun, authentic movie. That feeling when you like travel abroad and you're like, mm, I can kind of be whoever the fuck I want. Did you go with friends? I did. I went with two of my best friends. Okay. Were they and Phoebe I and brought Vanessa? them at, they brought, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I brought them as my assistants uh-huh. so I can expense it. Then I wrote the spec and it ended up at Netflix. Do you think other movies like Girls Trip have to get made, have to make money before someone says this is viable? It's one of those things where there's these gaps between these movies for no real good reason. They come out and they make a ton of money and everyone gets really excited about them. And then it's like, wait, it has to be the perfect one again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that when it's guys, we let like 
10 bad movies slip through a year and we go, oh, no, yeah. no, it's fine. The next year will be good. Yeah. And we don't even hold it against Owen yeah. Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then you get to the, you know, you make these movies that are led by women and they do great. Yeah. And then we wait and try to get the exact perfect one out again the next time. That's it makes true. no sense. It's like, no, it needs to, you know, from this generation of women, it has to speak to this. It has yeah. to be funny, but grounded and more grounded and vulnerable. And you're like, okay. I think that for both of us, like, when we started working together on this script when I came on board and we started, like, working it towards the cast and everything, we wanted to challenge the genre. And I yes. think that that, more, that was more of an influence in it and then being, like, specifically what is it to, like— you know, how do you make this different from other, like, female-centric movies? We wanted to challenge the genre the genre of a rom-com. And yes. so we we were really looking at, at that in a lot of places. Oh, and, you think and, this is a rom-com? I didn't put it in that category. I put it in the debaucherous, yes, yeah. almost slobs versus snobs. I, I'm actually glad, glad to hear you say it because I think that for us it was like, can you, like, make a rom-com that is as funny as a comedy? But yeah. that the romance is, like, really real and really intense and, and has this, like, very strong storyline. In case the music isn't that bad and you... Uh... You do stay around and um, then give me a call. Oh. Uh, and if not, I have a picture of you with a dick in your face and that's uh, photo blackmail. So you'll have to see me again to delete it. All right. For me, I wanted female characters that were like me and my friends. And that's really yeah. where it came from. I wanted girls my age or girls that were like me to be like, oh my God, that's me and my friends. And I always think the funniest things happen when it's someone like me, then the crazy is happening around them. Because like, then you're sort of, a, you know, finding yourself in that. You are, right. You're there's the normal the grounded thing mm-hmm. and the crazies around them. And that's always the funniest shit to me. Yeah. So I wasn't even thinking about it in like a female male way. It was more of just representing me and my friends. Right. And and as you said, the friends that you went on this trip with were two women and you're exactly. a woman. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, and, and and all the and the three girls are sort of hybrids of friends. Sure. Like the funny little specificities of certain people that I just put into those characters. Did the actresses themselves have any influence? I ask this because I listen to a lot of Two Dope Queens and Phoebe does love older men. And that shows up and that <laughs> Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. On the no, movie. we yeah. We, we saw that when we had our first chemistry read with the three of them, we knew like okay, we have a very special group here and LK and I we always had the goal of let's tailor the script to these three. Yeah. Like when we yeah. get the cast, we're going to rewrite it to the cast. Yeah. So we had everybody come out to Europe early. We did a lot of rehearsals, a lot of like improvisation. So we would get together in our hotel every morning for like three hours and we would all just play around with the scenes and do all stuff. And then LK and I would then go and take that and put it into the, into the movie. I mean, the other dentist at my practice will just cover my patients. We have such a nice understanding. That's because you're blackmailing him. What? No. That's a no. I'm not blackmailing him. I already told you. I just happened to walk into the office one night when he was huffing nitrous with our dental assistant, Dale. And I was just like, let me do what I need to do. And I won't tell your wife and kids about this. Blackmail is like, give me back my son. That's kidnapping. That's full-on kidnapping. The way the improv shows up is not that they improv while the camera is rolling. They improv and then a script is written based on their improv. Both. It's both. Yeah. both. Yeah. Like we, it was fun, you know, at the end of the day, a, an actor as talented as they are is going to feel more comfortable if it's written in their, you know, inflection and the way they speak. Yes. And so it kind of came down to that in writing things in or like, okay, they actually, she wouldn't really say it like that and it wouldn't come out as organic and authentic and that kind of thing. But then when we're filming, it's like, Get one is written, and then let's play. Come on, look at this view. Mm, 
I wouldn't lie down on that blanket if I were you. Hotel rooms are blacklight nightmares. There's like residual jizz everywhere. Where isn't there residual jizz? You know what I mean? A lot of times it'll just be a kernel of an idea that they freaking take to the moon. And you're like, that's amazing. So if you wrote this for you and your friends and it reflected you and your friends and then you have these three other women uh, improving, how much of original lines or original notions that came from you and your friends survive? A lot because then it's also like we're creating new things in the moment together yes. and it's also based on things that I feel or find funny or whatever that, you know, uh, him and I are such good collaborators and have the same sem- sense of humor and stuff AR. like that. AR. AR, yeah. R, actually, I call him. <laughs> well, we're sitting at Video Village together every day and I've got a microphone that goes through the set and we're sitting there watching all the monitors and playing with them and coming up with ideas yeah. as we go. And I think that the foundation of who these characters are and what the story is is, is laid very firmly and then... LK and I are just, like, very comfortable and, like, you know, as we see it happening, we'll make adjustments on the fly and it's, like, we always did that in videos at Funny or Die. It was always very, like, heavy on on that and I think that, like, it's just a comfort zone for us and it makes it feel so natural to that group and to us and I think it just, like, and it's also just so much fun. There's just so many fun discoveries that as I watch the movie again, I'm like, oh my God, that little tiny thing was thought of in the moment and it ends up getting like a, you know, a big laugh or whatever it is. I think that there's, you know, and I, I, just not that you haven't asked the question about this, but I'm going to say it anyways. <laughs> Sorry, but, but uh, McKay said to us when we got out there, he was like, I know it's a lot of work. It's going to be really hard, but you guys need to have a lot of fun. You guys are going to make a movie. Well, let me ask movie you a question. Let me ask you a question. Let me interrupt. Yeah. Did please. Adam McKay give you any advice about this movie? Yeah. Yeah. He was the first person to read my script. <laughs> yeah. No, this, I'm just leading you into oh, the anecdote. Oh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, the, the piece of advice he gave to both of us was really just like, do bits on set, have fun. Like, you guys have been friends for all these years and now you're getting to make a movie. Don't not have fun. Yeah. Like, the mistake people make when they're making a comedy, I think that, like, what, part of why this movie is so fun is that we were all actually having fun making it. And you feel that. He, that's always been his vibe on set. And he has, you know, I was his assistant uh, for a number of years. And the sets were always so much fun. And I'd be like, this is the best. And actors would be like, dude, it's not always like this. And, you know, I would go to other sets and be like, oh, okay. And he'd always be like, we're making comedy. Like, yeah. we're not fucking accountants. This should be fun. And we need to remember that. So I want to talk for a second about Funny or Die. It seems to me that, I don't know, when Funny or Die was in its heyday, late aughts, it seemed— Oh, that was when we were there. There you go. Yeah. Totally <laughs> coinciding with AR and LK. It seemed like it was a real golden time. It was. And thing, not just because you were there, but there was a lot of possibility with a lot of people, with a lot of yeah. different voices being able to fund comedy. And I'm a little more pessimistic now. Should I be? Well, it was a dream factory— we were all in our 20s and we wanted to be writing and directing instead of being assistants. And yes. Funny or Die created a place where you could go and, and literally like there was a period there where you could walk into the building and if you were there for enough days in a row, people would think you worked there and then you did. You yeah. know, like it was like, so it was just, uh, it was purely just like, can it you come in and, and, and impress people enough to stick around? The talent that came out of there, I think it speaks for itself. There's so many funny people that came through Funny or Die and that were, I think, still working at Funny or Die as the business model started to shift. I think that the internet changed, you know? Yes, like it the, did. But what, what people wanted again, the we always, we always wonder and worry about this, but did it change for the worse? Is the next generation of people as funny and talented or potentially funny and talented as you guys, are they going to have their place to flourish? I do get a little sad that there's not, like, a big creative staff there right now because, like, that's how we 
found our voices. Yeah, I don't know what the future holds, actually. It, it seems like it's ever-changing. And, like, I know when, and again, I, I don't exactly know what I'm talking about, but I know when, like, Facebook started streaming the video. Like, I don't know yeah. how it changed, but it was a destination, and then things changed with advertising and when money gets more involved. Like, Well, and you've seen a lot of people from Funny or Die then go to work for all the different late-night shows. Yeah, and work for they've SNL all moved on. Yeah. The, that's been a good thing. So that was yes. the pipeline. Yes. But if we're for looking at that, generation. not to be an insult, but if we're looking to that, something like that, as the robust minor leagues, where you let people fail and some is funny, I think that, I, I don't know, it seems to me that when Facebook went in and monetized it in a way and sort of punished experimentation, like it had to be good out of the gate, people had to know they liked it, when Facebook's incentives punished monetization, yeah. then the uh, then that, that hurt funny or die. The distribution of videos just got really hard. But yes. The thing I was going to say about the late night shows is that like they poured a ton of money into bringing in talent, spending money on the things, and then also making sure that it got in front of people. And they had the platform of being on TV and on the internet. Right. And it became very difficult. I think that Funny or Die, like, it was a brilliant model for a while, and I think that they're shifting right now, and they'll figure it out. We still need it. Like, we still need places for people to learn and grow, but, like, the monetization, just the big corporations did come in and throw more money at it and and won. There's a lot more options, but it is different. Yeah. I think also we it was like a flooded like sketch comedy became like a flooded marketplace it for did a minute. For a it was minute. just so much sketch comedy that now people are maybe shifting towards wanting to see a different thing out of comedy. We'll come back around where people want sketch again, but sketch was like very it fit very well for the internet. It's yes. short, it's tight, it's topical, and I think that it got flooded for a bit. And other things are are taking over right now, and it will cycle back again. Alex Rickenback, the director of Ibiza, Lauren Kahn, the writer of Ibiza. Thank you very much. Thank you Thank so much. You. And now the spiel. Yesterday, the Trump administration announced a massive round of tariffs on China. This would be, should be, huge news, but it was, for reasons I'll get into, treated as something that one must dutifully cover. Today, the Trump administration announced a 25% tariff on $50 billion worth of Chinese goods. Now there is the tell right there. If this were seen as legitimately big news, CBS News would have sought to clarify that's $50 billion with a B, because they didn't say that part. You know, they don't care. A trade war or trade tariffs would upend the economy and reshape trade, not in a good way, by the way. But the thing is that a trade war has been proposed and walked back, threatened and withdrawn, proclaimed and reeled in so often that no one knows what to do with these announcements. The one thing that seems wise is to just not take them that seriously. Trump is like a human confetti cannon that makes a bold statement. And then Mnuchin, Ross, Kudlow sheepishly come out, sweep up the confetti, and pack it back into the cannon. First, Trump proposed huge tariffs on steel and aluminum. Then he heard from U.S. aluminum makers and aluminum users, and they said, we really don't want those tariffs. It's going to hurt business. So he and his confetti crew came along, and they cut out country-by-country exceptions, Argentina, Australia, Brazil, South Korea, Canada, Mexico, 
the entire European Union, basically every major steel or aluminum trade partner except Japan. Japan only represents 5% of steel imports to the U.S. A few months ago, Trump began talking tough about Chinese tariffs. Reuters describes those talks this way. President Trump upped the ante against China in a looming trade war late Thursday, saying he's looking at $100 billion more in tariffs on Chinese imports. Trump will be piling that on to an initial $50 billion plan from last week. But soon thereafter, Treasury Secretary and Chief Confetti Sweeper Steve Mnuchin said there will be no tariffs, there will be no trade war. This has been a trade dispute all along. It never was a trade war. It's a trade dispute on significant issues. Both parties have agreed to suspend the, the tariffs. Uh, our, our 150, they're 50. Today, the confetti's out of the canister again, but each time with less pop and dazzle. Wall Street should be going into a panic, but that's so two months ago. Tariffs back? Okay, the Dow lost 390 yesterday. Today it gained back 306. That is not a panic. That is barely a shrug. That is moving less than 1% overall. And also keep in mind that Wall Street punishes uncertainty. They hate the uncertainty. Shouldn't this be uncertainty? Are there tariffs? Aren't there tariffs? No. The way they've decided to process these announcements, these mixed messages, is to say, yeah, we know what to think. Let's not make too big a deal about it. We know the confetti cannon has but two modes, pop and sweep, pop and sweep. The president is so nakedly, so patently unserious about his trade policy. In one sense, I'm glad because the policy he says he has is terribly, it's terribly stupid. But it's also clear that all he really wants to do is talk tough, get a headline, not look weak. But he has no appetite for actual action or actual policy or any direction. It's also apparent that he is desperate to get the North Koreans to a summit for which he needs the Chinese, and therefore the United States gives away whatever cards it has. But that's okay. It's okay, I think, to be interdependent in the modern world, especially if you're the United States, which is the biggest and most important player on the stage. And that's why these threats and these talks and this tough talk that should be shocking the market is really treated more like a joy buzzer. You know, for years, there's always been a debate over who is more advantaged in the economic relationship between the United States and China. Because really, if you want to be honest, to some degree, an autocracy has the advantage. An autocracy can set a goal and keep it. They can dictate to their people that these are the goals and you must meet the goals and the welfare of the people be damned. And an autocracy isn't subject to the vagaries of elections or the fits and starts of competing policy agendas like a true democracy is. However... The weaknesses I've laid out for the United States also are kind of a strength because the United States, yes, subject to the whims of the public, but the public is a sort of limitation on missteps and mistakes. America listens to its people and popular widespread displeasure will make itself felt. But in the current iteration of the square off between these two parties, I got to say it's not even close. When one side is a disciplined autocracy and the other side is a dishonest, dissolute, disorganized democracy or whatever you call this system that brought Trump to power, the autocracy is going to win. Of course, a serious people will best a scattershot collection of pikers and posers. And then there's the fact that no matter what in these sort of negotiations, at least America used to always have the moral high ground. Not saying morality is a market advantage, but all things being equal, 
the side pressing for human rights and an open society should have an edge over the one keeping a lid on dissent and spending its energy oppressing its people and playing defense. But now the U.S. barely has righteousness on our side. I've heard nary a mention of political oppression or punishing dissidents in any of these talks. The United States never even seems to bring that up. At least when it used to, that demonstrates American values, Western values, even if it didn't yield tangible results. So why not try it now? Because it seems that yielding results is absolutely beside the point to the trade tactics of the Trump administration. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who faked his own interest in many a TED Talk over the years. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, staged her own production of Lil Abner and then revealed the last minute, aha, was actually Finian's rainbow the whole time. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He made a big show of appearing to be felled by Russian ultranationalists when, in fact, he was ultimately just rushed by Norman Fell. It happens. Mr. Roper. The gist. We're not ignoring you. We've just faked your own death. Umpru dapru dupru. And I'd like you to know that the current episode of Upon Further Review has been retweeted by Bill de Blasio. He's the mayor of New York. He liked it. Thanks for listening.